Episode 63, Washington and the Revolutionary War. Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Did you like that intro music? I may have to keep that for a while. Well, the colonists have gone and done it. They declared themselves independent of Great Britain, who has basically laughed off the Declaration of Independence, and is now ramping up their military to go whip those darn colonists back into line. And like I said just a couple of episodes ago, Great Britain was the world superpower in 1776. The colonies only had a few small militias, made up of mostly farmers. But the Patriots also had home field advantage, which is going to make a big difference when they get into the playoffs. I mean, when they face the British Army in the field. And the colonists had one other trump card, their commander-in-chief, General George Washington. We'll talk about him more in a minute, but I'll just say here that there probably wasn't any other person in all the colonies who could have won the Revolutionary War for the colonists. So, at the time of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, there was already a war going on. We need to back up just a little bit. We've talked about those first three battles, which were Lexington, Concord, and Bunker Hill. All of those battles kind of ended in a draw. That is, there wasn't a clear winner. But when you're a bunch of farmers fighting against the British Army, a draw is actually a big win. And when you're the British Army fighting to a draw against a bunch of farmers, it's actually a huge loss. In fact, any time that the colonial forces were able to leave the field of battle and still be in some way a viable fighting force, that was actually a big win for the colonials because it meant that the British had not yet won and that the fighting would continue. This principle is going to matter throughout the Revolutionary War. Washington is going to rely on this throughout the war, as even after some defeats and several retreats, he is able to keep the Continental Army together and in the field, which again means the British haven't won. And as the war drags on, this becomes a bigger and bigger factor. So, if the battle is a draw, or if the Continental Army is still intact, it's kind of a win for the Colonials. It's like in the board game Risk. After a battle, if you still have one army occupying your territory, the other guy hasn't won. And like Risk, this is going to drag on for a good long time. We've mentioned Washington before in the episode on the French and Indian War, but we need to talk a little bit more about him. George Washington was born on February 22, 1732, in Northeast Virginia, on a fairly large tobacco plantation that bordered the Potomac River. His great-grandfather had come from England and started tobacco farming, and by the time that George was born, the Washington family was one of the most prosperous and prominent families in Virginia. The family farm was named Mount Vernon. It was named that by Washington's older stepbrother. Now, Washington himself eventually inherited Mount Vernon, and it was a successful business. And so, throughout his later political career, as he was a general and when he was in public office, he rarely took a salary. Not while he was general, not while he was president. In fact, the whole time he was in public service, he was always looking forward to just getting back to Mount Vernon and running the place. But he kept getting called back into public service, and we'll see this in this episode and in future episodes. 
I suppose I need to mention here, though, that Washington was the owner of a tobacco plantation, and so he was also the owner of slaves. He owned over a hundred slaves. In several private correspondences that he wrote to friends, he expressed support for the eventual freeing of slaves, all the slaves, and ending the practice of slavery, but he never mentioned this in any of his public speeches. Later, in his will, he made provision for his slaves to be freed upon both his death and then his wife Martha's death. She died two years after him, so their slaves were freed at that point. Washington, as a plantation owner, was dependent on slave labor for the financial success of his plantation. But apparently, he was one of the many founding fathers who had strong misgivings about the institution of slavery. This institution, this issue, is going to eventually rip the new nation of the United States apart. And there's clearly and obviously a contradiction here. As the new nation is about to be founded upon the principle that all men are created equal and they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these inalienable rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That ideal is clearly, obviously, at odds with the institution of slavery. And if they had been really consistent with the ideal, slavery would have been ended at the founding of the country. And honestly, we'd have all been a lot better off if they had just been able to bite the bullet right then and end the practice. But that's not what they did for a variety of reasons. I'm going to come back to this issue at length when we start to build up to the Civil War. But for now, I just want to point out that this is a fundamental contradiction between the ideals of the new country and its practices. And that's going to be a heck of a problem. I mean, heck, it still is a problem. A minute ago, I mentioned that Washington freed his slaves upon his and his wife Martha's death. So I need to talk a little bit about Martha. Why did you say that name? Martha Washington, who was born Martha Dandridge, was also from a very prominent Virginia family. She had a previous marriage to Daniel Custis, and they had four children, but only two of them lived to be adults. When Custis died in 1757, she inherited his estate, and so when she and George got married, they had two prosperous estates, so they were very well off. Martha was also apparently quite pretty and very popular in Virginia society. She and George, however, were never able to have kids, and Martha's kids from the previous marriage died fairly young. But they had, by all accounts, a happy marriage. And Martha was one of those people who everyone admired, just like George. So them, the two of them, along with Benjamin Franklin, were probably the most popular, well-known people in the Americas, even before the war. Martha outlived George by two years, dying in 1802, but I'm getting ahead of myself there. So let's get to Washington and the war. As I mentioned before, Washington served as a colonel in the Virginia militia during the French and Indian War, and that gave him good command experience and also gave him exposure to how the British Army worked, and that's going to come in handy for him later. I mentioned command experience. One of the things that many of his contemporaries mention about Washington was that he had this kind of natural leadership charisma in whatever setting he was in. Men just naturally respected him, deferred to him, respected his opinion, and wanted to follow him. He was tall, he was quiet, he was composed, he never got angry in public, he never seemed to lose his cool, he was wise, he was spare with his words, but he was also a very impressive public speaker. He was just the kind of person that everyone instantly respected, and it was a good thing that he was around because, as I said, there might not have been anyone else in the colonies who could have done exactly what he did. So what exactly did he do? 
Well, in summary, he won a couple of important battles, and he showed that he was really, really good at retreating. No, seriously, he pulled off some amazing and very difficult strategic retreats, sometimes in the middle of the winter or sometimes in the middle of the night, across dangerous rivers. And every time that he and the army got away, it was sort of a victory for the Americans. Like I said, the key thing that was that Washington was able, throughout the Revolutionary War, to keep a viable army in the field. And as long as that army still existed, the British couldn't say that they had won. The war was still on. The revolution was still going. But on top of the strategic running away, Washington also did win some important battles. And maybe most impressive of all, he just held the army together. He held together a completely volunteer, ragtag group of farmer soldiers, and then eventually molded them into an actual army. And this was almost entirely because he was George Washington. Like I said, there might not have been anyone else in the colonies who could have done it. Men followed him because of who he was, because of his obvious character and his personal integrity. So, back to 1775. The Second Continental Congress was in session. The battles of Lexington and Concord had already taken place, and a confederation of militia groups were surrounding Boston. The Congress at that point decided that the colonies needed an actual army with someone clearly in command. And in a very strategic move, John Adams, who was from Boston, nominated Washington to be the general. Now, this was super strategic because most of the militia were men from New England. But it was also very important, strategically, to get Virginia on board with the war effort. And so nominating one of their most respected statesmen was a huge gesture. And like I said, everyone knew that Washington was the kind of guy who could do it. Washington asked Congress to get him some cannons so that he could control Boston Harbor and drive the British out. But cannons are hard to come by. However, there were some cannons up in Fort Ticonderoga in upstate New York. You remember Fort Ticonderoga? It was one of the forts that was fought over back and forth during the French and Indian War back in episode 58. And at the beginning of the Revolution, it was in the hands of British soldiers. So about 80 men from New Hampshire and upstate New York in the region that would eventually become Vermont were sent to capture the fort. This militia, known as the Green Mountain Boys, was led by Ethan Allen and also by our friendly trader, Benedict Arnold. We mentioned him as well in the episode about the French and Indian War because he fought around Fort Ticonderoga. We're going to come back to him again later in this episode too. I should say at this point that in the early parts of the war, he served the colonial side very capably. Also, he knew the fort and the area around it very well. So Ethan Allen, Benedict Arnold, and the Green Mountain Boys snuck up to Fort Ticonderoga and completely surprised the 100 or so British troops there. The British gave up the, tr the fort without a fight, and then Allen organized the removal of more than 40 cannons that were there, as well as other guns, ammunition, and gunpowder. The guns and gunpowder were relatively easy to move, but it was a major undertaking to bring the cannons from upstate New York to Boston over some mountains in the dead of New England winter. But they managed to get all the cannons safely down from New York to Boston, where General Washington began to set them up all around the harbor. Now this was a huge deal. The British fleet was all anchored in Boston Harbor, and now they know they can't stay there, and neither can the British troops in the city of Boston, because the cannons make the fleet and city vulnerable. So the British evacuate the troops and the fleet and sail off. Now, this was Washington's first battle, and it wasn't really a battle, but it was still a victory because now he has liberated Boston. 
that was a huge boost to American morale because now they think, hey, maybe we can really do this. We did Lexington, Concord, Yorktown, and now Boston's liberated. And just after this happens, the Second Continental Congress signs the Declaration of Independence. It's a big couple of moments for the colonists right there at the beginning. So before I go any further, it's time for me to stop calling them colonists. They have declared themselves independent, and now they are actively fighting for it. A better word for them is rebels, but an even better word for them, and the word that eventually sticks, is Americans. So from here on, we are no longer talking about the colonial army. We're going to be talking about the American army. boo Washington realizes that the British force's next target has to be New York City. So he moves most of the American army down to New York City, along with some artillery. But while he is still getting everything into place, the British fleet, along with reinforcements, sails into New York Harbor. There were more than 130 British ships, with over 30,000 British and Hessian soldiers. The Hessians were a mercenary army that the British had hired from Germany. One American bystander looking at the huge armada said, memorably, It looks like all of London is afloat. The British landed on Long Island and then easily defeated the Americans at the Battle of Brooklyn. They began to push their way up Manhattan, capturing two American forts. Washington, defeated, retreated across the Hudson into New Jersey and then into Pennsylvania. It was a real low point for the Americans and what was left of their dwindling army. It was also now the beginning of winter, and back in those days, you didn't really fight in the winter. You just sort of hunkered down with your army and waited for spring. So the British set up encampments in various places in New Jersey, expecting themselves to wait out the winter. But Washington had other plans. He told his men to stick with him just a little bit longer, and they did. And on Christmas Eve, 1776, man, what a great year that would have been to be alive. Washington and his men crossed the Delaware River, which was full of ice. They crossed in the dark. And the next morning, they launched a surprise attack on the British and Hessian forces in Trenton, New Jersey. It was a stunning American victory. With very few casualties, they captured a thousand Hessian troops, six cannons, and lots of ammo, and a large and very needed stockpile of supplies for the troops, including jackets, blankets, and food. Then, in another surprise move, Washington attacked Princeton and surprised the garrison there, capturing more soldiers and supplies. Then, Washington and the somewhat rejuvenated army retreated back to Pennsylvania to sit out the rest of the winter. So 1776 ended on a high note. In the spring of 1777, the British sent more soldiers into upstate New York, and a separate army went towards Philadelphia. Washington tried to intercept them, the army that was going to Philadelphia, but the British captured Philadelphia anyway, and then they defeated Washington's counterattack at Germantown just outside of Philadelphia. Losing Philly seemed like a big defeat, and American morale was low. But Washington's army was still together, and they retreated out to the Pennsylvania town of Valley Forge. But up in New York, though, the tide is about to turn. Two British armies are trying to converge on and capture Albany in upstate New York. The larger army has over 7,000 men. The smaller British army, which was coming from the west, was stopped by a group of militias, and they never managed to join the main army. The main army was commanded by British General John Burgoyne. The Americans were commanded by Generals Horatio Gates and Benedict Arnold. Now, just a heads up, neither of these guys is going to be remembered well by history, despite their heroics in New York. 
Burgoyne was trying to march on Albany to capture it, but on September 19, 1777, he ran into the Americans outside the town of Saratoga. Burgoyne tried to flank the Americans coming at their lines from the left side, but at a farm called Freeman's Farm, ironically, Freeman, he met up with an American force led by Daniel Morgan. Morgan led a spirited defense and eventually turned Burgoyne's forces away after General Horatio Gates sent some reinforcements. Throughout the day, the two armies battled back and forth, and though the British managed to hold their position, they lost a lot of men and they didn't dislodge the Americans, so it was kind of a draw. And remember, draws are always a victory for the Americans. Also, the battle stopped the British advance towards Albany. The British held a strong position on a ridge, so they decided to dig in and wait for reinforcements. They were expecting General Henry Clinton to come up from New York any day, but he never got there, in part because he never really supported the plan to begin with. So Burgoyne's forces were basically trapped outside of Saratoga, and they waited there, and as they waited, more American forces showed up, and the British were eventually almost completely surrounded out in the wilderness with dwindling supplies and no way of contacting General Clinton. On October 7th, 1777, the British tried to improve their position by attempting to capture a high spot called Bemis Heights, which might have allowed them to find a way to fight their way out. But the Americans heard about the plan, and they sent a force to defend the heights, and that force was led by Benedict Arnold. Arnold led a strong and spirited defense of the hill and eventually pushed the British even further back into their own encampment and captured about 200 British and Hessian troops. Benedict Arnold was wounded badly in his leg, but on that day, at least, he was hailed as a hero for his actions. The next day, October 8th, the British tried again to retreat, going to the north, but they were stopped by a cold, driving rain, so they returned to their encampment on the hill. They waited a bit longer, but no reinforcements showed up. So, on October 17th of 1777, General Burgoyne surrendered. Now, this was an absolutely huge deal. An entire British army surrendering in the field to the Americans? It was unheard of. And it was an enormous boost to American morale. And on the other side, it was a huge blow to British morale. For the first time, people on both sides really began to see that the Americans could actually win this war. And it wasn't just the British and the Americans. The Battle of Saratoga also convinced the French that the Americans could win, and so they began to openly support the Americans. The French and the British were always fighting anyway, so now the French saw that they could deal the British a substantial blow just by helping the Americans. So the French sent a big fleet across the Atlantic to help the Americans against the British Navy. Now this was also a huge deal because the British Navy had completely controlled the coast of North America for the entire war, and when the British troops were near the coast, the British Navy could support them with an enormous number of cannons on the ships, and they could also quickly transport them up and down the coast. But the French fleet is going to challenge that. And there's one other upshot from the Battle of Saratoga that I want to mention that I just hinted at a minute ago. After Saratoga, General Horatio Gates suddenly became very popular because they won the battle. And Gates and some colleagues in the Continental Congress started an underground campaign to have Gates replace George Washington as the commander-in-chief of the American forces. But thankfully, that plot failed, and it even ended up raising the level of support for Washington within the Congress. 
and Gates would forever be remembered as a sneak. And to sort of remove him from the center of things, he was sent to command an army in South Carolina. And a bit later, in the Battle of Camden, which takes place in 1780, Gates was completely beaten by British General Charles Cornwallis. We'll come back to him again in a minute, too. And then after that, Gates was relieved of his command due to how badly he managed the battle. The other hero of Saratoga, Benedict Arnold, also did not fare that well. After the battle, he felt deeply slighted by the fact that Gates had gotten all of the recognition and attention. He felt like he had been passed over. He was, however, given command of the fort at West Point, which was an important fort and a fairly prestigious post. But Arnold was married to a woman from a loyalist family, that's the British loyalists, and they were in close contact with one of the big British generals in New York, that's General Andre. General Andre and Arnold began to secretly negotiate the handover of West Point, the fort there, for the huge sum of 20,000 pounds. That was a lot of money back in those days. But the Americans got wind of the plan, and they arrested the British general, and they found with him on his body papers describing the plan. So he was jailed and then eventually hanged. Benedict Arnold escaped to Canada and to infamy. He joined the British army and served for a while in Canada, and then he and his wife moved to England. He later moved back to Canada, but he was apparently very unpopular even there, and eventually he moved back to London where he died. So the name of Benedict Arnold is forever associated with being a traitor. Now, meanwhile, down in South Carolina, another American general named Nathaniel Green, who was also known as the Swamp Fox, was outwitting the British everywhere in the interior of the state, forcing them to withdraw mostly to just Charleston, where they were supported by their fleet. Now, this is the same Swamp Fox that was portrayed by Mel Gibson in the movie The Patriot. So now there's also some American success in the South. Back in upstate New York, the British have just surrendered an army, and in the south, they're sort of pinned to the coast. But in the middle, they still hold Philadelphia and New York City. They have been almost completely driven out of New England, but they still have a strong position in the center of the colonies. But remember General Cornwallis, the British general that I mentioned just a minute ago? He's still got a sizable army as well. And after soundly trouncing General Gates in the Battle of Camden, which was, by the way, the worst American defeat of the war, Cornwallis advances up into Virginia with the intent of perhaps capturing Richmond. That would have been a big blow. However, in Virginia, he met some surprisingly strong resistance from the local militias. They were led by Daniel Morgan, who is one of the heroes from Freeman's Farm back in upstate New York. He had been sent south by Washington along with some troops. Washington also sent the French general, the Marquis de Lafayette, to the battle. Lafayette is one of those guys who deserves his own podcast because he was just so interesting. In fact, I've mentioned Mike Duncan, who did the amazing podcast, The History of Rome. And Mike Duncan also did another amazing podcast called Revolutions, where he looks at a bunch of important revolutions, including the American Revolution. So two podcasts that I highly recommend the History of Rome and Revolutions, both by Mike Duncan. But Duncan does a couple of episodes on Lafayette because Lafayette was just such an interesting guy. Anyway, Lafayette and the American militias force Cornwallis to retreat to the coast, where he's hoping to find reinforcements and support from the British Navy. Guess what? They're not going to be there. Do you remember Saratoga and how that caused the French to decide to support the Americans and send a fleet? Well, deus ex machina, right here. 
On September 5, 1781, a French fleet defeated the British fleet that had been stationed along the coast of Virginia and drove them off. Now, this was a pivotal moment. For the first time, a foreign power had intervened on behalf of the Americans. And even more importantly, for the first time, the British didn't control the entire coast of North America. Cornwallis moves his army to Yorktown, Virginia, which is on a peninsula near the mouth of Chesapeake Bay. Ironically, it's on the same peninsula as Jamestown, the site of the first successful British colony. The British rule of America is about to end in almost the same place it began back in 1607. But now, in October of 1781, the sun is about to set on this part of the British Empire. Washington, with the help of another French general, Rochambeau, marches a huge force down from New York City, and they, along with the militias, pin British General Cornwallis in to the end of the peninsula. Lacking any support from the sea and running short on supplies, Cornwallis at first tried to fight back, but badly outnumbered his attacks were all defeated, and the Americans surrounded him on three sides. He had the sea at his back. On October 19, 1781, Cornwallis and his army surrender to Washington, effectively ending the British effort in the war. Now, supposedly, when the news of Cornwallis's surrender reached across the ocean to London to the British Prime Minister, Lord North, he said, Oh God, it is all over. It is all over. Well, it wasn't exactly over, but it was over. It wasn't until 1783 that the Treaty of Paris was signed, which formally ended the war and officially granted the colonies their independence. That was just over seven years after the Second Continental Congress had published the Declaration of Independence. The Americans, who had started with nothing more than Minutemen farmers and local militias, had defeated the greatest power on the planet, Great Britain. And it's almost impossible to imagine it happening without the amazing, steadying influence of George Washington. He held the army together at all odds. He kept it in the field, even when everything was going against them. The fact that the army even survived the winter of 1776 and 1777 in Valley Forge is almost entirely because of George Washington. The Congress trusted him, his men loved him, and on top of his leadership abilities, he was an astute general. Washington did not win all of his battles, but he won some key ones, including the Siege of Boston and then the surprise victories at Trenton and Princeton. He strategically retreated several times and sometimes in the dead of the night and kept his army in the field, and that was a huge factor. Like I said, as long as the army was in the field, the British hadn't won and the war was still on, and that in itself was a huge piece of the the overall strategy. He kept the army afield, he kept it together. He kept the British bottled up in New York for most of the war, and then he won at Yorktown, ending the war. After the war, there was not a single more popular, more well-known person in the Americas than George Washington. There were many people who wanted to make him king, which would have been ironic because the English king was also King George. But Washington wanted nothing to do with being king. After the war was over, on December 23, 1783, Washington walked into Congress, which was meeting in Annapolis, Maryland. He addressed the Congress and he said, Having now finished the work assigned to me, I retire from this great theater of action. And bidding an affectionate farewell to this august body, under whose orders I have so long acted, I hereby offer my commission and take my leave of all the employments of public life.
He gave up his power willingly and walked away when he could have made himself king because he was that popular. But as we all know, he wasn't quite done with public life. Next episode, we will look at the new government, well, governments, that the newly independent Americans form. And we all know that the executive branch will be headed up by our first president, none other than George Washington. <laughs>